This is the Converge Podcast. We meet at 10.30 every Sunday morning at Heritage Baptist Church in the chapel. This is a group that is geared towards those who are young adults who want to follow Jesus and live the gospel life wherever the journey takes them.
Good morning, everybody. So good to see you all today. Welcome to Converge on this Easter Sunday. We're going to get things rolling here in just a second. So feel free to grab some coffee, grab a snack, uh, put a prayer request in the box, any of that stuff that you're still working on. Just while you do that, I've got a couple of uh, quick announcements for us today. And we'll get things rolling. So as always, if you're not getting our text message reminders, if you want to know what's going on uh, throughout the week, I'd encourage you to text at HB Converge to 81010. Um, and that is basically the way that we send out information on where and when the small groups are meeting, what's going on throughout the week. If there's anything kind of last minute that we need to let you know about, that's usually where we let you know. Um, small groups meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. We've got a couple of groups on Tuesday and a group on Thursday. And then we send out some more information, you know, topic reminder, info like that on, uh, on those text message reminders. And then we've got a group specifically intended for juniors, seniors, young professionals that meet at the Ray's house on Fridays at 630. Um, so we'd encourage you to be involved in those if you're able to. For any other things going on at Heritage, uh, you can always check out the hub, hbclynchburg.com slash hub for more information about things coming up, uh, announcements to keep an eye on. If you, like I, uh, often walk into the service after the announcements have already happened, this is an invaluable resource to know all the stuff that you missed. Um, and then just a reminder that it is currently uh, Ramadan, so if we, you can be in prayer for the Muslim world, there's more information on that at hbclynchburg.com events, or you can go to prayercast.com and get more info on that as well. Uh, we're going to be hearing more from our Come and See series, working through the stories of Jesus, specifically the ones found in the book of John. And we're going to be hearing from Ben on that today. So that's all I've got for you for announcements. I think, Matt, you got us? Okay. Matt's got an icebreaker for you today. And then we'll turn things over to Ben. All right, it's going to be real simple today. We're going old school with the icebreaker. We all know the game telephone. You guys done that before, right? Where you a phrase starts and then it goes through everyone and then you see what it comes out as. So that's what we're doing today. So it's going to be pretty simple. We're going to split it into the two sides. So we'll tell the first person in the first row. You tell down your row. You tell the person in the row behind you. It goes back and forth, weaving our way back. So on this side, Roger, you're the last guy. So you, you're, yeah, you guys are the ones in the back. We'll hit you up when it gets back there time permitting, and same with whoever's in the very back row, I can't see back there, they'll be the last one, all right? So, Xander's going to tell the first person here, I'm going to tell, I won't tell Ben, he's, he's yeah, we'll, we'll get behind him, and then, then we'll go, all right? We start passing it along, so here we go. And you only get to say it once, that's the rule, right? You only get one shot at it, you don't get to say it over and over again, okay? Here we go.
right, so you may need, if you're in the next row and you're, there's a gap, you come, come on maybe, come on down so you can uh, get the message. Yep, you tell the people behind you and we go from there. This is going to be a disaster. looks on the faces that says it all. You're right. As I was saying it, I thought I probably could have took one or two words out. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we'll give it a couple more. If it doesn't make it all the way to the end here, we'll cut it short. We're starting to pick up some steam. through this side. always the guy in this game that just completely makes up his own phrase have we run into those people yet you think yeah all right here's what we're gonna do we're gonna end it on this row here and Bob you're gonna end it when it gets to you okay you're the last one. All right. You got it? All right, come here and tell me what you got. Here we go. All right, you, you killed the music there, Seth. All right, so here we go. Here we go. We're cutting it a little bit short. Sorry, Raj. Bob, give me, give me the phrase that, that you think you heard. The Easter bunny broke a big hole in the Easter basket. Okay, okay. Not bad. What did you hear? It was the evil Easter bunny broke... His grandma's eggs? His grandma's eggs. Okay, so the phrase was, and I think we might have gotten a little carried away with this, the eager Easter bunny, which I think you both said that, didn't you? Or pretty close to it? Not the Easter bunny? Oh, it was implied. The eager Easter bunny broke a basket of edible eggs. So grandma, I don't know where grandma came into the mix, but Easter is a family kind of holiday. So thank you guys. We're going to hand it over now to Ben Forrest, who will take it the rest of the way and tie this all together. Take it, Ben. Hello. Okay. Thank you, Matt and Zana. So today is a big experiment in my lesson. It is kind of a lesson that I've thought about teaching for a long time, but I've never had the right context for it. And so I, months ago, signed up to teach on John 8. 
And as I was prepping for it, I, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, this is the time to try this out. So I apologize if it doesn't go well. If it goes exceedingly well, that's just the Lord's grace. Um, how many of you would be willing to bet a whole lot of money that Bob got it right on the, the edible Easter bunny? or the eager Easter bunny. Anybody? Anybody willing to put out their, their life upon whether or not Bob got it right? Bob, would you put your life on that line? No. Anybody else? So years ago, I was at lunch with a bunch of people, and there's a man there named Andreas Kostenberger, and he's a New Testament scholar, and he's a, specifically a John scholar. And he started to tell the story of this debate that he went to. And it was a debate between someone who believed in the Bible and someone who did not. The person who did not believe was a man named Bart Ehrman. And so Bart Ehrman has the world's best-selling intro to New Testament textbook. And he's made a lot of money teaching people about the New Testament. Yet he doesn't really believe it. He considers himself a historian that doesn't really believe in the claims of the New Testament. He believes there was a man named Jesus. This man was a preacher. He lived in Nazareth. He preached in Galilee. And he died because the Romans put him to death. And so, Ehrman has made his whole life this study of Scripture, but in a skeptical and cynical sense. And so, Ehrman and this other man who was a believer were at this debate. And it was, I think, at the University of North Carolina. And Ehrman started off the debate playing telephone, just like you guys did. And he played telephone, and they passed the story of what he told them from one person to the next person. In the end, they got an evil Easter bunny and grandma, and an Easter bunny with a hole in the basket. And it's not what they started with. And so what he did is he said, see, the Gospels can't be transmitted. We can't trust what has been told to us or passed down to us. It's untrustworthy. It's not something you should put your faith in. And you should be skeptical about it. And Kostenberger, as he's telling the story, said, right then and there, Ehrman won the debate. No matter what the other counterpoint was, he won the debate because everybody has an idea, an understanding of what this looks like to play telephone and to get it wrong. And who the heck wants to place their life and their faith and their hope in Bob getting this right 2,000 years later? Anybody? Okay, so here's the experiment. We're going to play another game of telephone. Okay, so it's going to be chaos for a while. It's Easter. We're going to enjoy the chaos. Just let it flow. Uh, this is going to wrap into my lesson, and hopefully I'll then also get to teach a little something at the end of this chaos. So I need the two back rows, all of you to come up here, okay? The two back rows. So that back row on this side, that, this back row on this side, okay? And I'm going to turn my mic off for a little while.
Okay, looking like we are almost done. Thank you for your patience. Let's bring it all back and see if we can teach a little something before you all go home. Okay, so this side of the room, you guys totally cheated. But that's okay because it actually works with the analogy. Okay, it's all right, it's good. You were supposed to be like busy like this side was, but this is okay, we're gonna work with it. So, somebody from the front row from each side, come up. Somebody who's the spokesman. Dave, maybe Rowan, come on up. Okay, here we go. You're gonna turn and face the audience. Don't look at the screens, turn and face the audience. So the screens, I'm just gonna, okay. So, Rowan, why don't you read what you have? Very good. Dave, I'm interested to see what happens here. To him be glory, power, and praise from this until the end of days. Give everybody a round of applause. Thank you. Okay. So this, you guys can sit down now. Thank you. This is a poem by Henry Vaughn uh, called the Eastern Easter Hymn. There's really no relevance to this except that it's on Easter and today is Easter. So we pick something Easter-y. What happened? What was this analogy unpacking? This is a little audience participation. Telephone is not how the Gospels were transmitted. Okay? So that those who were in the back, I invited them up in a corporate group, and I said to them, you guys have met Jesus. You guys believe this is true, and you guys want to pass this on faithfully. And so what they did is they attempted to pass it on faithfully. This side passed it on in a written tradition. This side passed it on in a group, oral, and written tradition. And that's how the scriptures were passed down. It wasn't this game of telephone where one person in secret tells one other person who then totally loses the story, jumbles up who Jesus was, passes it on to somebody else who then re-jumbles up who Jesus was, and that's what we have. Instead, there were groups of committed, faithful people passing on who Jesus was to their neighbor, to their friends, with those who also knew who Jesus was. And then there was these checks and balances because somebody over here said, oh, I, I'm going to move over here. And now I'm going to listen to this Jesus story. They know that's not, how, that's not how it was. This is how it was. And so there's this constant comparison and this constant collecting of these stories of who Jesus was that were judged by the society and the culture and the people who knew Jesus. So what are the strengths and weaknesses of this analogy? Anybody have some ideas on strengths and weaknesses? Short. short. Okay. Yeah, short. There's, there's a weakness. Languages, okay. So one of the things that also in this community, if this were really picturing 
what we would do is we would break out and have someone translate this into Spanish and someone translate this into German, someone translate this into Syriac and someone translate this into Coptic because the Bible was not just transmitted in Greek, it was transmitted in all these other languages. So not only when we have these Greek manuscripts and we can judge to see, is this consistent here and here, we can see that, oh, it's consistent in Syriac and Coptic and Old Slovakian. All of these manuscripts across time and history point to the trustworthiness of what we have. Now, what I was asked to teach on is John, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. In your Bibles, if you have an ESV, it says this at the beginning. The earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Uh-oh. If you have an NIV, it says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 through 8.11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7.36, after John 7... Sorry. There we... Nope, maybe. Yep, nope. Slowly but surely. Anybody have an NKJV Bible? Okay. So her Bible says that it brackets 753 through 811. It's not in the original text. But it says that there are present in over 900 manuscripts of John. Anybody with NASB? Okay, yep, one. Uh, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, numbering it as John 7:53 through 8:11. Anybody with the Christian Standard Bible, CSB? It says later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, numbering it at 7:53 through 8:11. So as I was wrestling with how to teach this, I, I see this glaring in the text. This is possibly not in the manuscripts. And so how how do we teach that? How do I teach that in a way that you will walk away from here having faith in scripture? Why does it say that? What does it say? And so we're going to kind of unpack some of that. That, Part of the reason we played that game today is because I, I want you to see that what is passed down to us, we actually have a great understanding about. So in 1516, Erasmus, who was the most scholarly dude of his day, he, uh, he created the first Greek uh, Bible, the first Greek Bible combining the sources that he had available. And he had manuscript one and manuscript two. He had two manuscripts. And Erasmus in his day knew that John 753 through 811 was questionable. One of the manuscripts he had, it was not there. He knew it was not there. We've had 500 years since 1516 to do a whole lot of archaeology, a whole lot of research, a whole lot of study. And what we found is we found almost 2,000 more Greek manuscripts. 2,000 more. And yet, 
almost all of what we found supports what Erasmus had. So Erasmus had two manuscripts that dated back to the 12th century, 1100s. We have manuscripts that date back to the 3rd century, the 4th century. We have lots of manuscripts. We have parts of manuscripts that probably date back to the 100s. Now, John, the apostle who wrote Revelation, he died in like 80, 96 or something. So the 100s is not very far from when he died. He wrote the Gospel of John. We have a very short window of what happened. And not only do we have a short window of what happened that could change the text, we have all of those believers who loved Jesus, who met the disciples, who met those who were changed and touched by Jesus. And they shared with their communities. And not only did they share with their communities in their homogenous language, they shared with their communities across the world. So the Ethiopic Christian who was baptized went down to Ethiopia. They say that Thomas went to India. All of these Christians spread and they translated the stories and they told the stories in their mother tongue. And so we have thousands of stories that support what we have here in scripture. One of the books that I read this week was this book, Can We Trust the Gospels? If anybody wants more information on this, this is a good resource. Peter Williams uh, teaches at Cambridge. He runs a, a research center there. And they did, a, they did a new Greek edition of the Bible in 2017 at Cambridge with everything that they had at Cambridge, all of the computers, all of the resources, everything that, you know, a lot of things. Okay. At the end of their project, they compared what they had to all of these various other editions of the Greek manuscripts. And taking, for instance, John 1, 1 through 14, which is in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So taking those and comparing them through kind of a, a computer algorithm, there are 188 words in that, there are 812 letters, and every single letter in the Cambridge edition in 2017 matched Erasmus's edition in 1516. Even with the 2,000 manuscript differences, nothing changed. We can have faith that what has been handed down is trustworthy. So that is my introduction. I've got like 10 minutes left for the rest of the lesson. Here's the reason I spend a lot of time on this. I've got a lot of quotes up here. My wife says, don't read long quotes on PowerPoints. She's not here today to kind of give me those <laughs> keys. So we're just going to go with it. D.A. Carson, D.A. Carson's a great scholar. He's a conservative scholar. He said, even if someone should decide that the material is authentic, it would be very difficult to justify the view that this material is Johannine. So D.A. Carson says, this story, 753 through 811, is probably not original to John. Kostenberger, who I mentioned earlier, he says, the fact remains that the account almost certainly was not part of the original gospel and therefore should not be regarded as part of the Christian canon, nor does inspiration extend to it. In principle, the pericope is no different from any other possibly authentic statements of Jesus. Thus, though it may be possible to derive a certain degree of edification from the study, proper conservatism and caution suggest that the passage be omitted from the preaching in Christian churches. 
So that's interesting. Here I am in a Christian church. I'm teaching on it. Kossenberger says I shouldn't. So what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to take his advice, proper conservatism and caution. Gerald Borchert is another guy. He said, this little pericope is one of the great jewels of Christian scripture. But this is a text looking for a context. And so it's moved. It's had different homes and different manuscript traditions. So the challenge Gary Burge, another Johannine scholar, said, This brief account is probably not original, the fourth gospel. On the other hand, the story, was, the story has every suggestion of historical veracity, suggesting that it was indeed an event that occurred in the life of Jesus, and it was a story worthy of collection and recitation. These two factors give the interpreter an interesting problem. Here's the problem. Should a beloved story with weak manuscript attestation in a doubtful setting in John's gospel, be subject to the sermons. Kostenberger says, no, it should not. Carson says, yes, dot, dot, dot. He says, there's little reason for doubting the events that occurred here. Borcher, this little pericope is a great jewel. Leon Morris says, throughout the history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. It rings true, and it speaks to our condition. Okay, so I knew that all of my introduction was going to take a long time, so I am front-loading my conclusion a little bit here for small groups this week. So small groups, what I want you to do this week is not just spend time in this passage and try to teach yourself this passage like you're building doctrine from this passage. Instead, what I want you to do is I want you to take Kostenberger, Carson, Borchert's, Morris's, Burge's advice and build cautiously. So I want you to ask three questions, but I want you to spend more time on these other passages in Scripture to say, is what we're seeing here consistent with what we know is true? So we have this Johannine pericope that is probably not original to John, but it rings true to our human condition. And if it rings true to our human condition, it, we, we like it. You know, it was adopted into the Vulgate by Jerome, I think, in like 382. And so it's, it's been a part of Christian tradition for a long time. But out of conservative caution, we want to say, what does this passage say about Jesus? And then spend the evening asking, what does other passages in Scripture, how do they accord with this? Is there anything that we don't see or is there anything we see differently? The next one, what does this passage say about the woman who is caught in adultery? And indirectly, what does it say about us? Compare that with other passages. What does this passage say about our followership or our obedience of Jesus? And then compare that with other passages. So your challenge this week in small groups is to spend time in this text, but not just in this text because you're not building doctrine from a text that is a little questionable. We're going to build the doctrine from texts that we know are attested to the 2,000 plus manuscripts across the world and across the languages. Now I'm going to skip through this because it's just not going to. Okay, so I've got like six minutes left. And now this is kind of my lesson-ish. Um, I had three observations I wanted to pull out. As I studied through this text, there were three points that I 
that just caught me several times. So I'm going to read it real quickly, and then I will make some observations. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, we were now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. I lost my spot. And at once he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Three things stood out to me as I was reading this. There was a woman who was caught in adultery. Scribes and Pharisees said, The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Let him who is without sin, was Jesus' reply, be the first to throw a stone. Then he concludes and says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The woman who had been caught in adultery, the, the word caught stood out to me. And I think there's three things that come with this idea of being caught. First, you're found out, right? Then you, another version of being caught is you're ensnared. So if I was... I have three little kids, and every once in a while they'll do something wrong, and we will catch them doing something wrong. So they were caught. They were found out. They were hitting their brother in the back seat, and the rearview mirror was perfectly placed. I caught them doing that. Another type of being caught is being ensnared. If you ever, um, my dad was, had some raccoon problems a couple years ago, and so he, he went and got a raccoon trap. And he caught the raccoon and realized that it was a mama and he caught all the babies too. And he didn't have the heart to do anything with them. So he, he drove an hour out of town to let them go. He caught them. The other type of being caught is being taken captive. So there's three observations here. When I catch my kids doing something wrong, shame often accompanies sin. When I am caught doing something wrong, shame accompanies. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are caught naked, they have shame and they cover themselves. And what we do as humans, as Christians, is we want to cover our shame. What Jesus did is he covered our shame for us with his blood that we might become the righteousness of God. There's a, a book we like to read 
my wife and I called Gospel Fluency. We would recommend it to any of you who would like to read. And in it, he talks about shame. And in it, he tells a story of his kids catching them in a fight. And his son had, I think they were doing a puzzle, if I remember correctly. His son had like mangled the puzzle or something. Uh, and then when his sister freaked out, he crawled under the table and hid. Because our inclination when we are caught in sin is to hide. But Jesus calls us forth and says, you don't have to hide. In me, you can have restoration. You can have forgiveness. You can have hope. The other type of being caught is being ensnared. Lions snare the unaware and the, un the ambivalent. First Peter says that the devil is like a prowling lion seeking for who he can destroy. My dad had three sons, and so he would often read us Proverbs. And when he would read Proverbs, he would, um, Proverbs 1 through 7, at some point say the words, my son or my sons. And so he would look us in the eye when he would read that. In Proverbs 7, it's talking about this, this young man who is, who is being stupid because he's walking down this, this street late at night where a prostitute lives. And this young man is being tempted by his feet unaware. And he goes and she calls out to him and he goes to her house and says, she says, my husband is not there. And so he was ensnared because he simply walked down the wrong street at the wrong time. In our lives, all of us have the potential to be caught because Satan is like a prowling lion seeking for whom he can destroy. And I want to encourage you to know that you have the potential to fall. As I talk to students, I, I like to use the word fallability, not fallibility, fallability. And, and I, I started thinking about this years ago when I was working, I was working construction uh, right before I got to grad school and I was talking to a friend and my friend's a, kind of was a he, was a, he was a Christian guy, he was a charismatic guy, he was kind of idealistic and naive, and he's like, I'll never cheat on my wife, you know, blah, blah, blah. But he, he didn't have these habits, he wasn't married, but he was just kind of thinking through some stuff, and he didn't have habits of holiness that really guarded him. He, he flirted with the line of the habits of holiness far too much to say, I'll never. And in fact, in my life, my experience has been saying, I will do that given half a chance, and so I've got to stay back here. I can't get to that line because I know Ben Forrest. Ben Forrest will fall if given the chance. So I've got to stay back. There is wisdom to knowing that you are fallible. That the devil is a roaring lion seeking to destroy you. Then there is the captivity or the being caught that is being taken captive. Captivity is not for the normal Christian life. And I italicize normal Christian life because it's a book that was really formative for me in college. It's by a man named Watchman Nee. Uh, he wrote the book while he was in a Chinese prison. Um, he's got some odd mystical theologies somewhere in his writings. Um, but I really liked a normal Christian life. I think it's kind of one of those readings that every college student should read at some point. And he says that, that victorious living is what should mark a Christian. 
Now, it may not mark you today or tomorrow, but over a 30-year life, it should be your, your status because we have been given victory in Christ who triumphed over the grave. We have been given Christ's victory. Years ago, I was in college, and I went to college in Idaho, where I'm from, and there was this girl who shared her testimony at kind of a college Wednesday night thing, and she was talking, and she had this word picture that has since become just, it was impactful to me then, but I've used it a dozen times, more than a dozen times, but she was talking about her life and and her Christian faith, and she said that for a long time, she was a, a person who was bound head to toe in chains. And then Jesus came and Jesus came into her life and Jesus set her free. And so in that freedom from Jesus, she stayed in her chains. Jesus had severed the chain and yet she still stood there as the default position of her life, chained in these bondages of her sin. And I think so many Christians tend to also find themselves in that thing, that Jesus had severed the chain, is no longer staked to the ground but we don't walk in the freedom that Christ has given us. So this woman was caught in adultery, shame, ensnaring captivity. These are the things that Christ came to free us from. See, lots of long quotes. Okay, observation two. Um, the law of Moses tells us to stone such women. What do you say Let him who's without sin be the first to throw a stone. The law of Moses doesn't actually say to stone such women. The law of Moses says stone such women and their partners in the act if two or three witnesses see them actually having sex. So they were selectively picking what they wanted to in order to trap Jesus. Now, we're not going to get into Old Testament ethics here. But they were selectively choosing something in order to trip Jesus up, but they weren't telling the whole story of what it says. And so we can go back and look at at Deuteronomy 22 where it says both of them, the man and the virgin, the man and his neighbor, they're both put to death over sin. So my observation number two is beware of good-sounding theology. That's not true. I think that's pretty simple, but important. I went to a Christian college in Idaho, and it was a quasi-liberal Christian college where my professors did not believe the Bible was true. They did not believe in the stories, in the miracles, in, but they were brilliant men who had spent their whole lives studying. And, and one of my professors once after class said, hey, Ben, I have this article you should read. And I said, sure, I'd love to read it. And he said, Uh, The title of the article was, Why the Bible is Not Inerrant. And he had all these really great arguments, like, Jesus says your faith, the the mustard seed is the smallest seed, and we know that's not true, therefore the Bible can't be inerrant. That's not really a great argument. But he had all these kind of things that he was mishmatching to put together to build this kind of cumulative case against Scripture. And as this professor, he wanted to open my naive, conservative Christian eyes to these wonderful truths that the Bible is not true. 
but they sounded good. And, and a lot of my friends walked down this path of, with him into really bad theology, and a lot of them have walked away from their faith totally because when you take away the grounding of our faith, you take away the reason to have faith. So beware of good-sounding theology that is not true. My last observation is we are not condemned. I think I've taught like three or four times in the last year, and every time I teach, I mention Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet judgment is for the Lord and not the church. So Jesus says in John 3.17, for I have come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But there is a judgment. There is a right judgment. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about judging within the church to judge each other corporately in this kind of, we're pursuing holiness together. And if you're not, if you're not pursuing holiness, we need to have a conversation about that. We need to talk about this. We need to, to understand what is at stake if the body itself is not emblemizing, emblemizing the holiness of God. Jesus said that he did not come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. It is not the well who need a doctor, but it is the sick who need a doctor. This woman had sin in her life, obviously and evidently. This woman is the type of woman that Jesus came to save. If you have sin in your life, you are sick. Jesus is the one who came to save sick people, not the self-righteous who think they're going to get there on their own. He will deal with them in his way at his time because they are sick, they are sinful, but he is going to let them walk and see how far their righteousness gets them. But for those who are contrite, this woman who said, he said, woman, who has condemned you? She said, no one, then neither do I. So today on Easter, I want you to walk away having faith in the story and the gospels that have been handed down once and to all for the saints. These things were written for us as examples. First John says he wrote these things so that you may know God. You may have faith and confidence and hope. I'm gonna conclude in prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. I pray that you would help this Easter be one where your name is magnified on our lips. I pray this in your name. Have a great Easter. Go home. Somebody's teaching next time. Isaiah. hope you have a great time we'll try to hold down the fort without you um but isaiah will be here to teach next time guys have a great easter thanks ben for this challenge Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you would like to get plugged into a small group, 
just text HB Converge to 81010 and you will get the text reminders for all the small groups. If you have any questions, just respond to one of those text reminders and it will go to our leadership team and they will be able to respond to you directly.